0: Thank you very much to the um, PIL group for taking the trouble to invite me. And um, I'm very pleased to share with you some uh, thoughts about my recent book, a copy of which, unfortunately, I don't have. Mm -hmm. So you have to use your imagination. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if anyone has a copy or not. Mm -hmm. Uh, OK. Well, that's great. That's great. I'm going to borrow this copy just just to show you that there is actually a book anonymous. Okay. So you say you can't judge a book by its cover, but I think this one you should judge by its cover because it has a very lovely photograph. Well, I shouldn't say lovely, it's a very moving photograph of Syrian refugees arriving on the shore in Greece. And, um, and I had nothing to do with selecting the cover photo, so I can um, compliment it, but it captures really the theme of the book, In Search of a Better World, A Human Rights Odyssey. And um, in Canada, we have um, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. And just like the BBC Wreath Lectures, every year an individual is selected to give um, what is um, sort of a privileged platform for public lecture, a public lecture that is broadcast on the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation in five parts. And there is actually a tour. Um, from coast to coast to coast in Canada. We have actually three three oceans. And um, so when I was first called and told that I'd been selected to deliver this in 2017, at first I said, thank you, I'm really deeply honored. And I was busy Googling CBC Massey Lecture, reading the Wikipedia page. And I realized that although I knew something about this lecture, it was you know quite overwhelming. The, Previous speakers had been the likes of Martin Luther King and John Kenneth Galbraith and Margaret Atwood. Um, And uh, I realized that it's quite a challenge to write a book for a non-academic audience, a book which is really part of a national conversation. And when I began to think about how to write the book, um, a certain gentleman was elected to the White House in the United States, and all of a sudden the urgency of the human rights message really was transformed. I was recently at a non-fiction literary festival. And I said that before the election in the United States, I used to watch House of Cards for entertainment. Now I watch CNN headline news. So I really thought that uh, this is a unique platform. And I had a great responsibility to say something meaningful. Um, And as someone who's been in the academy, in the United Nations, in all of these, you know, elite circles. And I don't necessarily use the word elite in a pejorative sense. It can be, but it doesn't have to be. And that's really part of what I was trying to convey here is how do we communicate the urgency of our message uh, of human rights, of social progress, whatever it is that we have a passion for, how do we communicate that to the wider public? And given what has happened in the world where we witness sort of the unravelling of our uh, sort of liberal complacency uh, as we see the rise of um, public rage, uh, despair, hateful demagoguery, uh, the question I wanted to ask myself is why is it that the liberal elites are losing, are losing the battle to the hateful demagogues? What is it that we're not doing right? And although we in the Academy, in the United Nations, in all of these uh, sort of uh, progressive uh, self-contained worlds, um, uh, see ourselves as looking uh, at the world with a certain critical distance. I don't think we often enough look at ourselves with critical distance, as difficult uh, as that may be. So I decided that in writing this book, in trying to convey the message of human rights and its relevance to the public, uh, that I would uh, indulge in something which I know very well from my culture, storytelling, storytelling. And storytelling is deceptively simple, deceptively simple, because um, we are told, whether in indigenous, uh, uh, ancient indigenous traditions uh, or just as well in feminist epistemology, uh, that uh, we need to really understand the world in the deepest sense, not through intellectual abstractions, but through relations. And relations imply emotional connection. And we live in a culture of Occidental rationalism. I myself come from a culture of Oriental mysticism, and I've tried over the years to reconcile these two very different uh, ways of approaching knowledge. So uh, it occurred to me that uh, we need a populism of empathy, that in order to convey the uh, uh, deepest message uh, Uh, underlying the concept of human rights, that of human dignity, we need not just to peddle in intellectual abstractions and cutting-edge theories, which has its own place, but that uh, there is now a pressing urgency for us to speak about these issues in a way that is relevant to a wider public discourse. And I knew that in approaching Uh, the topic of human rights through storytelling, through narrativization, which also includes reflections on history and philosophy and politics and a whole range of other issues, but told through the stories of people um, so that people understand the consequences of the ideas and policies uh, on the lives of real people rather than uh, abstractions. I knew that in adopting this approach, I would invite the scorn, if not the derision, of the educated cynic Um, So uh, it was with that reason that I was very pleased that it became a top bestseller, not so much as an ego trip, but as a vindication of my own sense that we are missing the point very often, that we are failing to connect with the real uh, suffering and struggles in our midst, uh, and that if we don't transform our public discourse beyond politically correct platitudes and paying lip service to liberal ideals, uh, then we will continue to lose to the demagogues that know how to push the emotional buttons. And not all emotional buttons are bad. there are the good and the bad emotional buttons. But our whole idea of intellectualism um, is so terrified of emotional intimacy. And we believe that knowledge is about critical distance, which I understand. But there is also a deeper knowledge which comes with empathy, the capacity to connect emotionally, to feel the suffering of other people. And it's that deeper knowledge which clothes our areas of expertise with with meaning. So the point here was not to be uh, anti-intellectual, but to try to uh, situate what we do in a much broader context. So the story begins, in a sense, with my own story, which is no better or worse than anyone else's story, but I can really tell best only my own story. And I speak about what it was like as a nine-year-old to leave Iran, which was my uh, country uh, of birth. And the first words in the book are, I speak a little English, because I came as a nine-year-old and told that we would have to leave in an awful hurry and go to this place called Canada, and I was deeply distressed that I would have to leave behind my friends, my toys, my cats, and everything that I really enjoyed about my life there, and to go to a place where I heard people lived in igloos. And my dear colleague, (laughs) Professor Bjorklund, who's also at McGill, uh, lives in Montreal during the winter, and she will testify that's not far from the truth. (laughs) We don't live in igloos, but (laughs) sometimes we wish we could. So um, it was quite a culture shock to arrive in Canada as a nine-year-old, and um, I remember one of my first encounters with normativity was my fascination with why Canadians obeyed traffic regulations coming from the chaotic streets of Tehran where survival of the fittest uh, um, applied, and uh, it was a very different reality, and I went through the process of adaptation. Another uh, memory I had was... Seeing color television for the first time and realizing that John Wayne actually doesn't speak Persian, but he speaks English, (laughs) uh, something uh, that was quite surprising. So the uh, reason I begin with that story is to explain my own journey in search of a better world, which is why the book is called A Human Rights Odyssey. And as an immigrant uh, teenager, I was trying to do you what know, every adolescent does, trying to fit in, overcompensating, being one of two brown children in my schoolyard, and trying to be more Canadian than the Canadians. Um, so for me, um, human rights was hardly my priority. My priority was Disco music, I hate to say it. I know this is being recorded. This is the end of my <laughs> academic career. Um, so I had, uh, you know, the typical sort of priorities of any uh, adolescent. And then when I was 16 years old and the revolution in Iran uh, was reaching the apogee of its uh, violence, certain events uh, completely altered the course of my life. Now, I reflect on the role of intellectuals throughout this book in various chapters. And in this particular case, I reflect on how when Ayatollah Khomeini was in Paris in 1979, about to return to Iran on his uh, sort of uh, triumphant homecoming after the uh, Shah uh, fled the country, uh, that one Michel Foucault met with him and was so uh, enamored by this charismatic figure that he called him the Iranian Gandhi and uh, he was soon going to regret those words and sort of delete uh, de- delete the sort of uh, push the delete button and move on to other intellectual projects except for those of us in Iran it wasn't really possible to move on this uh, sort of charismatic figure would bring a reign of totalitarianism and terror in the name of uh, in the name of liberation and progress, which is always the case, which would result in the uh, execution just in the 1980s of an estimated 50,000 people in my country, some of whom were family members and loved ones. So in this sort of bigger picture, um, where uh, people whose lives were forever changed and in many cases forever shattered, one of my contemporaries in the Iranian uh, Baha'i uh, community to which I belong, a uh, sort of long uh, persecuted religious minority, which has been the traditional scapegoat in Iran, uh, uh, the reason why we fled Iran exactly was because my parents knew that in the event of any political turmoil, we would be the first sort of victims of uh, political violence. So uh, one of my contemporaries was by, uh, by name Mona, Mona Mahmoud Nejad. And she was 16 years old, like me, and she was in high school in a city of Shiraz in Iran. And she wrote an essay on human rights for her high school teacher, except that instead of being obsequious and praising Iran's leaders for championing uh, the Islamic conception of human rights, she wrote a scathing criticism. Uh, of their uh, hypocrisy, uh, demanding her rights and saying that I, too, should have the freedom of belief and conscience and so on and so forth. For that, Mona was arrested. She was brutally tortured. And some months later, she was hanged together with nine other young women in Shiraz. (laughs) And that completely shattered my world. Because the first thing I asked is, why her and not me? we were both in the same community. The only difference is that my family came to Canada and she stayed behind in Iran. And that very basic question really was to change the course of my life. And I reflect on that because I think sometimes it's those intimate encounters with injustice that slice through our complacency like a knife. And that's what it did to me. As a 16-year-old, I decided that it would be utterly irresponsible of me to uh, use the freedom and opportunities that I had in Canada in pursuit of selfish mediocrity. So I decided I was going to commit myself to fighting for justice. So in a sense, it wasn't that I chose a human rights career. A human rights career chose me. It was the only path of redemption. And I mentioned this not to indulge in some kind of sentimentality or play the victim card, which I'm absolutely against, (coughs) but to explain that ultimately, until we feel injustice, we will never understand why justice matters. We can talk to death about human dignity, about all of the fashionable concepts that we have, whether as politicians, as academics, as UN bureaucrats, whatever the case may be. But until we have An intimate encounter with what suffering really means. I don't think we will ever have that deeper motivation uh, to use our knowledge and our learning and the skills that we have for social betterment. So I recount how I ended up from the child that spoke a few words of English to the lectures, uh, to the lecture halls of Harvard Law School, and how the world looked um, on the one hand. Um, being filled with uh, hubris, having you know, gone to this very elite institution uh, and the sense of success which that brings, being uh, among all these incredibly uh, accomplished uh, individuals. I even had a classmate by the name of Barack Obama, who was a skinny kid no one imagined would become the president one day. But I felt a sense of arrogance. A sense of a disconnect with suffering in the world. Just as everybody was saying the right things, everybody was indulging in progressive platitudes, I felt that a deeper understanding of what is really happening in the world, the urgency with which we need to act, was lacking. And I would take that with me, that sense or that contradiction, uh, to the United (coughs) Nations and to the many other places where I would end up in my career. The second lecture, um, and the first lecture, is called The Knowledge of Suffering. And it's exactly about how the beginning of our journey is that deeper knowledge of why human dignity matters. In my second lecture, I, uh, entitled in pursuit uh, The Pursuit of Global Justice, I speak about uh, how I accidentally ended up being the first prosecutor in, in The Hague at the Yugoslav Tribunal. And it was truly random, being in the right place at the right time or the wrong place at the wrong time, depending on how you look at spending a decade of your youth dealing with mass graves and genocide. Um, and that point itself speaks to how um, the ICTY was seen in a very glamorous light. And part of it was glamorous. You were there making international law history. Every case that you litigated was groundbreaking jurisprudence. Uh, but. Uh, the grim reality of, you know, the mothers of Srebrenica digging through mass graves to find bits and pieces of their children was anything but glamorous. And again, there's this incredible contradiction, uh, difficulty to reconcile this sort of elite enterprise, which was absolutely important, uh, with the grim reality that it was intended to to address. And once again, when I was in uh, Bosnia, in those years where uh, ethnic cleansing and genocide shattered this sort of post-Cold War euphoria, Francis Fukuyama was speaking about the end of history, um, it occurred to me how little those that are shaping our thought and our policy really understand the reality on the ground. And it was in those years that I read, while I was in Sarajevo, Samuel Huntington's Clash of Civilizations. Which is probably one of the most influential pieces of our time, which I think is utter garbage, if I may say. And the basic premise was that in the post Cold War era, uh, the new fault lines would be civilizational fault lines. And that theory was devised in order to explain ethnic cleansing in Bosnia. It was devised in order to explain why it is that Bosnian Muslims and Orthodox Serbs and Catholic Croats are killing each other. The idea was that, well, they are at the fault line of the Ottoman and Austro-Hungarian Empire and the fault line between uh, Eastern Orthodox Christianity and Western Catholicism and Islam and all of that. And in Sarajevo, every other person I met came from a mixed marriage. In the old bazaar of Sarajevo, there was a Catholic church beside an Orthodox church, beside a mosque, beside a synagogue. And during the Spanish Inquisition, The Jews, the Albigensian Christians all fled to Sarajevo because it was notorious as a place of tolerance. And I wondered, what is it that this great learned scholar knows that I don't know, (laughs) being there on the ground, talking to the people in this cosmopolitan city? And it occurred to me, as uh, Warren Zimmerman, the last US ambassador in Belgrade, wrote that the war in the former Yugoslavia was not a case of spontaneous combustion pyromaniacs were required. And it was really an instance of the instrumentalization of identity to rip a society apart uh, as uh, a means uh, for uh, acquiring power. (coughs) And this, of course, had a lot of impact in understanding why the War Crimes Tribunal was important, a project that many of the policymakers ridiculed as being naive idealistic, even an impediment to the peace process. There was a peace conference, and I speak about my encounter with Slobodan Milosevic and Ratko Mladic and Radovan Karadzic uh, having seen what they had done on the ground to thousands of uh, innocent people, and the rage, the instinctive rage of seeing these people in the halls of the Palais des Nations in Geneva being treated as dignitaries. So the basic message was that it was entirely unrealistic to think about putting any of these people on trial because they were needed to negotiate a peace agreement. Uh, And uh, I realized that my biggest asset was my naivety (laughs) as a 20-something-year-old idealistic student who simply had this instinctive urge to see justice done. And uh, in the end, it turned out that the so-called political realists were completely unrealistic. They believed based on this clash of civilizations theory, that the only way to achieve peace was the ethnic partition of Bosnia uh, to basically ratify the gains that were made through ethnic cleansing um, and to leave untouched the very same ethnic entrepreneurs (laughs) that had ripped this society apart. And it turned out that they were the ones that were utterly unrealistic. And the reason why the Yugoslav Tribunal became a success story rather than simply a paper tiger issuing arrest warrants that went unexecuted is because after the Dayton Peace Accord, the UN peacekeepers on the ground were saying, how can we get rid of these people who are completely undermining all of our efforts at confidence building? So we stepped forward and said, well, we have a number of arrest warrants that are waiting to be Executed. And it was when the UN peacekeepers agreed to execute those arrest warrants, beginning with an operation of the British uh, SAS um, in uh, Pryodor, where they arrested one um, man by the name of Milan Kovacevic, who who was a a notorious figure uh, who was involved in establishing the concentration camps in the Pryodor district of northwestern Bosnia. And more important, when a man named Simo Derliacca, who was the police chief in Priador, um, fired at the soldiers and was killed in return fire, that was the moment that the ICTY arrived. So here you see the illustrious judges, the wonderful Nino Cassese, one of my uh, heroic uh, mentors, and all of these great jurists and prosecutors and defense lawyers putting all of these cases, reducing the enormity of genocide to the antiseptic confines of legal procedure. But it took some soldiers in Bosnia to kill Simo Derliacca, to send the message to all the war criminals that they would be arrested. And what's incredible is many of them began to turn themselves in, not wanting to face a similar fate. And sometimes they would leave disappointed because they would not be on the list and the soldiers would say, I'm sorry, we can't arrest you because you're not on the list, you haven't been invited to the party. But I end this chapter by reflecting on, when I left the ICTY, the sense of futility, the sense on the one hand that what you've done was absolutely a moral imperative, that it would be unthinkable to leave these... A monstrous crimes unanswered, but also to realize that justice is not going to bring back the dead. As Hannah Arendt famously said about the Nuremberg judgment, these crimes explode the limits of the law. And many people became upset that I didn't have the sort of triumphant ending that we put the bad guys on trial and we deliver justice, because I think we need a sense of humility about how much we can realistically achieve, which isn't to say that we should not have had the ICTY the world would be a far worse place without it, but it's merely to understand how inadequate it is uh, against the enormity of the suffering. In the third lecture, um, I reflect on... um, It's called The Will to Intervene. I asked the basic question, which I did back then, uh, is genocide, mass murder um, a kind of natural disaster like a tsunami, an earthquake, that sort of spontaneous combustion theory, the idea that, well, these things happen in Africa and Asia and in those other parts of the world, and there's really not much we can do about it uh, except to say never again, which becomes uh, ever again, complete mockery. And I reflect on my... Uh, experience with Rwanda to ask the basic question about radical evil uh, in our midst. And I tell it through the story of one of my wonderful students, who I think you you know, Andrea, Eloge Eloge Butera, um, who came from the dirt classrooms of Kigali as a Tutsi child, who was humiliated to um, become one of our outstanding uh, alumni from uh, (laughs) McKeel Law School. And Eloge's story is remarkable uh, in terms of the randomness of his survival. (coughs) Eloge and his family were Tutsi, and during the mass killing which began in April of 1994, he and his family fled to the École Technique Officielle, which was the headquarters of about 150 Belgian peacekeepers. There were 2,500 UN peacekeepers in Rwanda at the time, Um, and everyone thought that they would be safe at the UN compound because the genocidaires were going through the streets, basically killing people who were Tutsi based on their identity cards or based simply on their physical appearance. By the time Eloge and his family arrived there, um, the UN compound was overflowing. There was no space, and they were turned away, and they thought that they would die. And... Miraculously, Elouge survived because he was denied entry to that school. In the later uh, days of April, the UN Security Council decided that in response to the genocide, it would withdraw withdraw the UN peacekeepers. And at the same resolution, which basically um, abandoned the Rwandans to their fate, the Security Council condemned the human rights violations in Rwanda. And this is another one of those surreal moments um, where you basically sanitize um, not just inaction, but abandonment of people to mass murder through paying lip service to human rights ideals. The fact was that Rwanda didn't matter. A million lives in Africa were completely unimportant, inconsequential. Nobody would lose a vote for abandoning people in Rwanda. But beyond bemoaning what happens, the horrors of the Rwandan genocide, I reflect on the anatomy of genocide. Could we have seen this coming? And I come to the startling conclusion that the genocide could probably have been either prevented or significantly impaired through the simple measure of shutting down a radio station in Rwanda. And that radio station was uh, Radio Television Libre d'Emile Colline, which was the weapon of mass destruction without which it would have been impossible to mobilize the tens of thousands of machete wielding killers that were required in a poor developing country to kill up to a million people in three months, a killing rate three times that of the Nazi concentration camps. So this was a televised Holocaust. It happened in our midst. It happened a year after President Clinton went to the US Holocaust Memorial Museum's inauguration and said, never again. So we like Holocaust remembrance because it's detached from the challenges of the present. It's no longer about Myanmar, Syria, Darfur, Rwanda, Bosnia, It's about some fetishistic remembrance, which doesn't implicate our complicity as bystanders in the present. In the case of Rwanda, during that period, 95% of the population lived in rural areas, 70% were illiterate. RTLM was their sole source of information. And the word of RTLM was the word of God. Indeed, the prescription for the murder of the Tutsis was called the Ten Commandments, invoking biblical imagery among a very religious and obedient population. So I ask the question, what would have happened if that radio station was shut down? How would it have been possible to mobilize so many foot soldiers, so many willing executioners? And I come to the conclusion once again that the problem isn't that we don't have a brilliant theory, the problem isn't that we don't have the right policy, the problem is we don't care. There is no empathy. We don't feel the suffering of other people. We don't want to pay a price for our ideals. I'm just going to move on very quickly uh, because I don't want to take up too much of your time. And I may as well turn this to a therapy session or lie down on this sofa here and you can all <laughs> listen to me for a few hours. So in the last two parts, I try to bring this challenge of human rights to the reality of people in Canada, the United States, living uh, in the West. And that was the most difficult part because it's wanting to tell a gripping story of being a refugee, of persecution, of exile, uh, of going to war zone with the UN. But how do you make this relevant to the people that have a very different reality than certainly uh, I do? And um, during this lecture tour, I went from the Yukon in the Canadian Arctic to British Columbia to Newfoundland to Quebec to Ontario, and I really uh, saw people that I would never have come into contact with. Everything from, you know, uh, sort of an indigenous smudge ceremony with which the lecture tour began to people in small fishing communities in Newfoundland. So I, I, now I want to write a book about the book tour <laughs> because it was a transformative experience to really see the extraordinary capacity of people for empathy. And this is what I want to talk about quickly uh, in the last two lectures. The fourth lecture was called The Oneness of Humankind. And it began with September 11th, 2001, when I had just left the UN after 10 years of exhaustion, despair, and no one was really talking about PTSD in those days. Um, But I, uh, after the birth of my son, held sort of the miracle of life in my hands, and I said, enough of death, enough of genocide. I had become angry at the victims. I'd become angry at how my, perhaps, uh, inability to have proper boundaries had actually destroyed my life. So I said, to hell with human rights, I'm going to private practice. I'm going to become a corporate lawyer, and I went to New York... Uh, I worked with Deborah Voice and Plimpton, an excellent law firm, and I was doing international arbitration, and I was on top of the world, literally. I was in a beautiful skyscraper with a panoramic view of Manhattan. Um, and then on September 11th, my two-year-old boy and his mom and my parents were on the way to the World Trade Center. And for several hours, the telephone lines were down. I didn't know if they were dead. Or alive, and it was an incredible experience, because it was unimaginable that in a place like New York, people would experience the type of suffering which I'd become accustomed to in Bosnia and Rwanda and elsewhere. To see the sort of collective grief of people—someone who was your next-door neighbor who lost her husband because he had a meeting that day at the World Trade Center, someone who worked there but was elsewhere—the randomness of life and death coming to this place of incredible ambition and um i reflect on what it was like to realize that you can't just get in a un airlift and leave and feel sorry for people this time it's your family so one of the things i remember is that on september 10th i was reading an essay by one of my friends uh, uh, my friend, compatriot, Kian will know Mohsen Nahmanbof, a very famous filmmaker. You may have seen Kandahar, which is one of his films. He's a, one of the sort of masters of cinema verite. And he had made Kandahar with a bunch of Afghan refugees. And that was his art, to just take ordinary people and make extraordinary films out of their stories. And Kandahar was a story of how the world had abandoned Afghanistan, how no one cared that the Taliban were massacring people, uh, how people were starving to death, and this country, uh, which had been a pawn during the Cold War, when we were more than happy to train and arm jihadists, had simply been abandoned because it was no longer useful to anyone. And Baf, his essay was called The Limbs of Nobody, um, meaning to say the limbs that have been cut off, uh, whose pain nobody experiences. And he was angry that in March of 2001, when the twin Buddhas of the Bamyan were destroyed, the world was outraged, but the world didn't care for all the years that the people of Afghanistan were living these horrible, horrible uh, lives. And he said, the Buddhas were not destroyed. They crumbled out of shame, that their greatness could do no good. Now, I was reading this, and the limbs of nobody actually comes from a Persian poem. Persians love poetry. If we were only as good in um, governance, we would have a very different uh, reality. Um, So if you go to the United Nations General Assembly, you'll see a Persian carpet which was donated back in the 1960s. And it has a beautiful poem written by Saadi, who was a great mystic from the 13th century. And the poem which is difficult to translate, but it's something along the lines of all human beings are members of one whole, created in essence of one soul. If fate should bring on one part pain, the others uneasy will remain. You, who have no sympathy for human pain, the name of human you cannot retain. And it's the story of interdependence. It's about interdependence. It's about our interconnectedness. This in a society that is electronically hyperconnected, but experiences only the most superficial of connections, which is experiencing this pandemic of despair amidst plenty. The point about this was twofold. To speak about how our indifference to suffering in Afghanistan, came back to blow up into our face. And I guess blowback is now the sort of fashionable term, but there's a much deeper understanding that interdependence isn't some naive ideal, it's an inescapable reality. That visionary leadership is realistic leadership. And that sort of this Machiavellian cynical thought is no longer sustainable or realistic apart from moral uh, considerations. So the story of September 11th is seen through the prism of what happens when we use people and then abandon them, uh, only to realize that uh, in the world that we live in today, that globalization isn't just a romantic ideal, but there's a very grim side as well uh, to how, if you like, this uh, disease of Uh, uh, extremism, um, which was weaponized in the Cold War years, would come back and create havoc uh, in our midst. And there were many people who were the champions of this sort of Cold War logic, who to this day are still celebrating their genius at tearing down the Soviet Union through um, uh, unleashing the jihadist genie uh, against the uh, Soviet empire. The final chapter is called The Spirit of Human Rights, where beyond this idea of political leadership and interdependence and the need for strengthening global governance, I try to bring the human rights message to a very personal level for the proverbial average person in Canada. Why should it matter to us? Well, for one thing, um, I begin by speaking about the suffering in our own backyard. And some months ago, I was at the a hearing of the um, national inquiry into murdered and missing women in Canada, in Canada, Canada of all places where 40% of indigenous children live in hunger, live below the poverty line, where thousands of indigenous women and girls are uh, murdered or, or missing and how it is that we sometimes want to be the savior for distant peoples (laughs) because we don't want to look into our own backyard and see the injustices uh, in our own midst. But I go beyond that to uh, speak about how, in a culture of consumerism, we confuse superficial sentimentality with genuine empathy. And worse, worse. We exploit the suffering of other people for branding exercises and um, uh, demonstrating our own virtue. So I begin with an image of red carpet events, Hollywood celebrity who I'd encountered at the World Economic Forum in Davos. They will never, ever invite me there again after what I've written here, but that's fine. (laughs) And um, so the fashion magazines are writing about the beautiful two-piece outfit of this celebrity. And there's another celebrity with a $40,000 Hermes Birkin bag. And it's an amazingly glamorous event. The cameras are there. British Prime Minister David Cameron and Foreign Secretary William Hague are uh, fawning over this celebrity, Angelina Jolie, uh, like schoolboys. What is the event? It was the Global Summit on Victims of Sexual Violence in Armed Conflict in London in the summer of 2015. And it was a spectacular event. It received extraordinary media coverage. And one could say it was a good thing because it brought to the surface the terrible reality of sexual violence. And in in that particular time, the Forgive the expression, but it was from Margaret Wallstrom, who was the the UN Special um, uh, Rapporteur on Victims of Sexual Violence. She called Congo the rape capital of the world, especially Bunya and Ituri, where thousands and thousands of girls had been raped under the most uh, horrifying circumstances. So this conference was about um, drawing attention to their plight. So who could disagree with that? Except, except the conference cost 5 million (coughs) pounds. And almost nothing was given to the NGOs on the front lines that are actually helping these poor people who are living with their trauma day in and day out. There was no follow-up. There was no strategy. There was nothing. It was a big spectacle, and it was forgotten. And now who talks about the victims in the Congo? We've moved on to the Yazidi, And the Yazidi are also being forgotten. Maybe now it's the Rohingya. And it's this kind of flavor of the month approach towards activism, which is not about genuine empathy. It's not about meaningful engagement. It's about uh, our own, uh, I call it moral narcissism, (laughs) trying to pretend that we have virtue without paying the price, without uh, meaningfully engaging with the reality and asking ourselves, is what we're doing actually helping those in whose name we, we speak. So I'm just going to wrap up by saying that uh, all of this may sound quite depressing, uh, and it's a difficult read, and I received hundreds of emails, and uh, uh, I, I really learned a lot from the reaction of people to to what I'd uh, written. But at the end, my message is a message of hope, but not of you know feel good <coughs> slogans and the idea that I'm so virtuous because I pay lip service to the right thing, but to understand that there's a connection between the despair, the uh, collective mental health crisis that our societies are facing, the spread of anxiety and, and depression and stress and all of that, and our lack of empathy, our lack of connection with living lives that have a deeper meaning and purpose and. My basic message is that by fighting for justice, we're not anyone's savior except our own. We're not doing anybody a favor. We're just retrieving our own uh, authenticity. So I will end with that and say that um, I'm probably going to go back to writing academic books, although it was a lot of fun writing um, a nonfiction book for a general audience. Uh, But at least um, for me personally, it has been a tremendous learning opportunity. Uh, to reevaluate um, why it is that what we do as educators, as scholars, as practitioners, uh, why is it that it matters? And how can we um, make it uh, even more relevant to the pressing challenges of our time? So I'm sorry for going on for so no, long. Okay. I will stop there. Okay. I promise. Thank you very much.